Hello and welcome back to the fourth episode of the Most Traveled Podcast. As always, I'm Joe Altaffer, back with my dad, Bill Altaffer, and today we want to talk about a specific place in Antarctica. So to start off, who goes to Antarctica? Well, I think it's people that have been to the other six continents and they're looking for something different and to complete their their continent list if they have such a thing. But uh, or are there people that are interested in birds and uh, and the exotic part of uh, what Antarctica provides? Because it's definitely not a place that the average person goes to. Uh, no, it isn't. I don't know what the figures are now. I went back in the uh, early '90s. So that's close to 30 years ago. So um, ships have been going. More ships have been going. Larger cruise-type ships have gone, which I don't recommend. But I don't, I don't know what the numbers are. So why, why would people go? Why would you go? Well, I went because I wanted to see what it was like. I talked to a friend up in Mammoth who spent a year there working at uh, McMurdo Sound uh, for the American government. I think he was a truck driver or something like that. And he spent a whole year there. I thought that's really amazing because, you know, once it closes down for the winter, our summer, you're there. You're not going anywhere. And it's uh, dark, I guess, 20 hours, 22 hours a day. Wow. So to experience something like that, I, I didn't want to ever experience that. But I just thought uh, I was fascinated by someone who had been to Antarctica and then in the early 90s, uh, tours started going there. Cruises started going there. So is that how you got there, through a cruise? It was. And that's how I got associated with a company that I worked for, oh, for at least 15 years, called Marine Expeditions. It was out of Toronto. And it was a uh, Canadian company, obviously, started by uh, Sam Blythe. He... Uh, Right after the Soviet Union broke up, he got the idea to lease Soviet, now Russian, ships uh, to take them to the Arctic first on tours and then later to the Antarctic. So for your trip in particular, did you take an icebreaker down there? Took an ice class rather than an icebreaker. So what, is, uh, what does that mean? It means it has a hull that can break through two or three feet of ice. So that's what's called an ice class? Yeah. Okay. There's a time maybe we'll talk about in our uh, podcast when I did the Northeast Passage and the North Pole on a real icebreaker. In fact, a nuclear icebreaker. But mm. this was an ice class called the Academic Iofi. And it, like all the ships that Sam... Uh, leased over the years, they were formerly spy ships, spying on mostly the United States uh, using different methods. Mm -hmm. So how long are these trips typically? The shortest is about two weeks, two and a half weeks. And uh, the kind I think is the best is something like a month because you want to, after you've done the continent of Antarctica, you want to see the island of South Georgia and uh, the Falkland Islands before you come back. This is if you're leaving on the South America side to get to Antarctica, which is the most popular way 
to go. There is the uh, Australian side, <clears throat> as well as the South African, but nobody does that. How come? There's no place to go there except Marion Island that belongs to, and that's a research station. They don't want tourists there. Um, so it's not something that tourists do going from th- Australia? They do go from Australia, but not from South Africa. Oh, not from South Africa. Uh, they go f- from South... They go from Australia to see the emperor penguin mm. because his colony uh, is larger on the uh, on that side of Antarctica. So is he exclusive to that region, I guess? Yes, I think I have heard that there, they have found some emperors that you can reach from the South American side, but <laughs> I, I think I'm a little gray on that. I'm not sure. I, I don't think that's <coughs> excuse me, done very often. So did you see any penguins when you went on your trip? Absolutely. And uh, how how were they? They smell. Really? <laughs> but they're beautiful. Are they and, are they in big groups like a thousand of them or Yeah, uh they're in their uh herds or I forget what the name of a group of penguins is, but uh, what's coming to mind and I have some great photographs is on the island of South Georgia and uh where Shackleton's buried. We know about this Shackleton uh expedition. If we don't, it's worth reading I do not. Well, tell me more about it. Well, he was a Brit, and uh, they got stranded down there, and their boat sank, and he made a rescue using his his open boat, uh, lifeboat, and he got to South Georgia to get help. Um, South Georgia's an island that uh, I suppose it goes up two or 3,000 feet, and uh, normally there's nobody on the island. When we were there, there was a couple in a sailboat that was running the little museum uh, there in the harbor. But uh, Shackleton's buried there. And, oh, uh, really? So he died there? And, uh, yes. Oh, uh, and, uh, wow. But I think, I think he came back, and then he was brought back and buried there. But my point is that there were rookeries, I think that's penguins, rookeries, of 20, 30, 40,000 all up along the shoreline, all the way up into the mountains. And I got a picture of my friend wearing a bright yellow jacket right in the middle of the group. And, uh, you know, it's it's fantastic to watch these animals waddle along in their little tuxedos. Uh, and uh, But the smell is extremely it's Extremely bad. Okay. So I've heard that some people go on this trip as a way to maybe lose weight. That could be from the roughness of the sea. When you're crossing from South America, you got the Straits of Magellan and the Drake Passage where all the currents of the Pacific merge into the Atlantic and you get some of your most uh, rough waters, horrendous waves in the oh, world wow. are there. Yeah, but, you know, these ships that race around the world, uh, they, sometimes they get in trouble there. and uh, And then tourists being... Stupid as they can be sometimes, like perhaps the people that sue their travel agent because they went to Kauai and it rained the whole week. Uh, People I've heard sued once because they went across the Drake on an Antarctic trip and it was smooth as glass. And they wanted the roughness. And they they'd read about the Straits of Magellan. They wanted to experience it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm sure nothing happened related to that. But uh, what I recommend is, just like Alaska, the smaller the ship, in this instance, 
the better because you can make more landings. Probably after two, three days when you reach, if you go out of Ushuaia, which is the most common way, Argentina on the, on the island, Terra del Fuego, once you get to Antarctica, you can usually make two to three landings a day. And you do that in Zodiac boats, rubber boats that uh, Jacques Cousteau designed 50 years ago, those rubber pl- boat boats. They're the easiest to get people ashore and back and handle the rough seas. Whereas I've heard of larger cruise-type ships going to Antarctica now, and they can't make the number of landings that a small ship can. So let's uh, segue a little bit back to your specific trip. So you went back in the 1990s. So mm-hmm. how did you get there? Where did you fly to? Well, we all had to get to Buenos Aires, and then uh, Rio Gallegos and Rio Grande were two stops, I remember, on the flight out of Buenos Aires, and then to Ushuaia on the island of Tierra del Fuego, island of fire because the volcanoes. And then we boarded the ship there, which in this case, again, was the academic Iofi and probably had 150 passengers. And um, we took off for Antarctica. So how were the first couple of days at sea? They were rough. It, it was doable, though. It wasn't too extreme, but it's what I expected. And how long did it take from where you were to get to Antarctica by sea? Well, like I said, two and a half to three days. And then three we, days? Okay. Yeah. And so you, when you get there, are you traveling to different spots around Antarctica? Or you're just kind of There's a There's a couple around? islands that we'd go to, and then we'd make a landing right on the uh, continent itself. Okay. And, uh, you know, you get in your Zodiac boats, I guess, 10, 12 people per, per boat. And the, the Zodiac driver has to be uh, quite experienced to handle the, the waves and uh, currents, etc., because it could be dangerous. There have been people who drowned doing these trips when the, when the Zodiac uh, flipped over or they fell out of it. And then uh, you're wearing your life jacket. And uh, in the beginning, people would uh, use the rubber boots that were on the boat but then later, I think they told people to buy their own and bring them on the trip. So you got to allow that in your luggage, these big rubber boots, to step ashore. If you have tennis shoes or something like that, you're going to step into the ocean. You're going to you're going to have wet feet. But um, so you got to actually kind of walk on that ice. Uh yes, but mostly we get off where it's rocky and slippery. Oh, okay. And uh, then you walk up onto the ice. Um, I, everybody would put all their life jackets in one pile, but I remember usually I'd keep mine on because it gave me a little bit more warmth. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, and you would see uh, stations like the Chilean station uh, where uh, they'd had uh, a camp, an encampment for a dozen years doing research. So there are, f- there are a few outposts out there. There are a few outposts, obviously nobody there. And, uh, it was it was a great experience. So correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there a lady you had traveled with that was looking to swim? Oh, with them. Well, when you get on this, these ships with with penguins, right? Ships require by law over twelve passengers to have a doctor. Kind of an international thing. So on our ship, which was Russian, uh, they would change these names later to. 
anglicized names to sell them in brochures, but they're they're Russian ships. Uh, she was the ship's doctor, and she um, got off almost every stop we had. And this first time I looked at her, she was rather portly, and she went down to the water's edge there, and I'm looking at her, and there were uh, sea lions in the water swimming around and mm-hmm. penguins on the shore. She strips down to her bathing suit, and she goes out into the icy water and starts swimming. And it wasn't one of these dunk things like they do at the North Pole in a hole, and then everybody she gets She just out. went straight into the she, open water. She spent a half hour in the water. Really? Swimming back and forth and back she, and forth. Was it cold? Did you reach your hand in it? Or well, like what? I say, I'm on the shore wearing my life jacket, <laughs> plus down parka, plus, plus, plus Can you even layered. spend 30 minutes in Arctic water? I can't. I feel like you'd get hypothermia. So I thought about her. If I had to go to her on the ship for a medical problem, she would probably recommend keel haul. What's that mean? Well, during the pirate days, to punish somebody, they'd tie them to a rope and drag them underneath the ship. Oh so they pull from one side, and you'd, all the barnacles of the ship would cut you in. The, and that's anyway, supposed to help you? I mean, or well, if you went in, you complained about um, your nose cold. I mean, what's she going to tell you? You know, go out on the bow of the ship and take your jacket off. I, it, nobody went to her, I don't think, for any problem. Tell me a little bit more about this specific trip. What did you see? Where'd you go? Well, the first encounter, I said, was an island. I think it was Deception Island which had been uh, reached by the early explorers to uh, Antarctica. And uh, in that spot, they had a, a like a uh, hot springs. So you could actually take off whatever you were wearing, big parka, backpacks, things like that. And, and you wouldn't have to go in the cold water. You could, you could get into the hot springs water and, uh, you know, as soon as you got out, you better put everything back on. But it was not that cold. Uh, it, it was doable. It was no colder than, let's say, being in a ski area uh, during really? the winter. Yeah. So you would expect it to kind of be like Siberia, you know, that Arctic. Right. Throw the chickens in there, they freeze before yeah. they hit the ground type of feel. When you right. Think. But, you know, they say that Antarctica is the coldest place on the face of the earth. And as you go into the interior, and there are mountains that you're looking at that are two or three, 4,000 feet high in the distance. Uh, and then on the beaches, you're seeing uh, rookeries of penguin everywhere. Are there and, any other animals out there? There are sea lions and seals that uh, are trying to escape from the sea lions in the water. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, I'm looking at the rough sea to see if it's how rough it's getting because you would go back in groups when the zodiac filled up. So you, whatever number you arrived on the shore, you didn't have to uh, go back in that boat. And uh, as the seas would pick up uh, to get a smoother ride, less wet ride on the way back to the boat, I, I would pick and choose when I went back. But you know, as you walk across these cobblestone type wet rocks you have to be careful that you don't slip and the the zodiac driver and maybe an assistant will help you into the zodiac boat so you don't get wet and you uh, don't slip and hurt yourself but uh, your your walks are probably up to a mile if you want if you wish and to like i said uh, research stations that have been abandoned by expeditions that mostly were represented by various countries 
And so there's the, the British and the Russian and the Chilean and the American stations. And um, you could go into the uh, gray uh, uh, buildings of wood that have been weathered by the 100-mile-an-hour winds that it gets in the winter, and you could still see canned food in there, uh, some of them with labels still on it, and you could see a desk and chairs and where these people spent the winter. Because once the winter comes for them, uh, which would be around May, you're, you're not leaving until at least October. If you remember a couple of years ago, there was a, an American doctor lady who uh, a, a, analyzed her own cancer, and she knew she had to get off the island. And I think she, she, she survived, but it was, uh, I mean, off the continent. Uh, but it was, you know, once you're there, you're not leaving. The planes don't go in and out of the bases like at, at the American base at the South Pole and McMurdo Sound. It, you're, you're, you're there for the, the duration. Okay, so what other islands did you see while you were traveling there? Well, this Deception Island uh, was the first one. And then South Georgia on our way uh, back to, uh, to Ushuaia. And then we stopped in the Falkland Islands, and this trip we went to Port Stanley, the main island, and uh, there we saw uh, they have a war museum showing uh, what took place between the Argentinians and the uh, and the uh, British forces, because if you remember, they had a Falkland War, and they. Uh, when you're at the airport in Buenos Aires, as you go to the airport, you'll see this big sign up on the highway. It says, Malvinas son Argentinas, which means the Falkland Islands belong to them. Still there today, I think. So <clears throat> the generals of uh, Argentina had started this war with the Brits for a bunch of reasons. I think they thought there was oil there and their economy was lagging and it could help them or something, give them some direction. Of course, they lost the war, and but the, they didn't think the British were going to be able to fight it because they, the closest the British troops were to uh, Antarctica was up at um, Ascension Island in the middle of the uh, Atlantic. But in the uh, in the museum there, the uh, curator was showing us guns and, and, and lots of uh, mining. In fact, after. Well, when the Argentinians knew that Port Stanley was going to fall, they mined the whole island, and they put these mines, and then they tore up the uh, the directions or the locations, the map of where all these these mines are. So today, you'll be out there, and there's just thousands of sheep herding uh, across the Falkland Islands, and then you'll hear a blast, mm-hmm. and then when I stepped on a mine, one of the sheep, and they're Oh, my Dead. gosh. And so they have a group of British uh, mine extractors that uh, stay there, and they try to go out and find these mines still to this day. It's, wow. it's a real problem. That's crazy. Uh, one story I thought was pretty funny was we're in, the, uh, we're in the museum. Whether this is true or not, this is what the curator said. You would see little bridges outside of Port Stanley, and it would say built by the number... 12th Regiment of the Gurkhas. Now, the Gurkhas, if you know, are the Nepalese uh, soldiers 
that the British trained hundreds of years ago, and they really are some of the greatest fighters, if not the best uh, military unit in the world. They were in Italy during World War II, and they're, they're unbelievable. They're the ones that have that knife with the curve on the end, and they're silent, and they're, they're very stealth-like. Well, anyway, they built all these bridges, and so this one Gurkha officer said to his uh, captain in the, uh, in the British forces, Sir, why are you using us to build bridges when we're the best fighters in the world? So supposedly the captain yelled over to the Argentinian troops, Tomorrow we're sending the Gurkhas. And supposedly that was the end of the war and the Argentinians surrendered because they knew what the Gurkhas were all about. So how much would it cost, would you imagine, for the average person to go to Antarctica? I think now it's probably in the fifteen dollars to $20,000 range. Really? Yeah. Okay, so definitely not the cheapest trip to go on. No, and it gets higher all the time. Do you need a visa to visit Antarctica? No. No? Okay. But there are treaties that forbid, say, nuclear icebreakers or nuclear ships uh, from going into the territory. Apparently, the Russians would love to get in there and extract and the Chinese. All their minerals. All yeah. the minerals. But right now, it's not happening, thank God. And so it's preserved. So when would you say is the best time to go there, time of the year? It, it has to be in our winter. It's, it, in the best winter. time to go is November, December. January is excellent. February is excellent. March, it's getting towards the end of uh, their, uh, it's the fall for their. What happened at the end of your trip? Well, this was very unique in the sense that, um, or it was unique. We almost were stuck there for two months or more, and it was unforeseen. So we're in Port Stanley. The next situation was a couple days there and then sail across a little stretch of the Atlantic to Ushuaia and then board planes back to Buenos Aires and go home. So I'm out on the deck and I'm looking down in the harbor and I see the Zodiac going across the harbor to the governor's mansion and our captain of the ship is in a white Napoleonic type costume with a hat. It looks like something Napoleon would have worn and he's got his sword at his waist, and he's standing out on the front of the Zodiac, and I'm going, what is that all about? And then soon, some of the crew come up, and they're passing out copies of this piece of paper that they had, the original they had stamped onto the mast of the ship, and it said, in the name of Her Majesty, Queen of England, Sovereign of Scotland, Wales, Ireland, I hereby impound this ship. Mm -hmm. And we're going, what's the deal? Wow. And this is on a Friday. Mm -hmm. We have New York doctors who have operations they're going to perform the following week that are, you know, they need to get home. And so the ship, Rus Russian registry, about five years earlier was in Hamburg and they had repairs done to the ship and they never paid for them. Well, the lawyers for this, the merchant marine of, of, uh, of uh, the Germans, 
got the British to impound this ship in Antarctica on a Friday, knowing the stress it would put on everybody so they could collect what was owed to them. Mm -hmm. So he goes over to get released from, from the governor, and the governor says, no, the boat's staying here. So what I'm trying to tell you is, when you go on this, these kind of exotic trips, you may have to think about with Antarctica, different than anywhere else in the world, you may be stuck there. And <laughs> you could have been. There were people that ended up there two months because what happened was they didn't know that what we're going to do. So the officers of the ship said, okay, anybody here want to just stay on the boat? And there was a 20, 30% of the people, let's say, were retirees from Florida mm -hmm. who, you know, they're going to be there. They're going to get their meals and they're going to get bored as hell at Port Stanley. But they said, okay, I'll, we'll stay to the last. Okay. I was just recently married and my wife's at home and I was pretty good friends with the guys on the ship. So I managed to be the first one off. Mm -hmm. I said, I got to go home. You know, my wife needs me and still I, so they, they, what they did was nobody could come from Argentina to help us because technically, like with the United States and Korea, North Korea, they're still at war. Mm -hmm. They still have a war relationship. Now, what we ended up doing is getting a small airplane from Chile, permission to fly over Argentina, out into the Atlantic for two or three hours in rough seas, land at Port Stanley, and take off three people a day. So this small plane only held four people. So you got the pilot, so they could take three people off a day. So I said there was like 150 people on the ship. It took two months. Every day this plane would make this, you know, and so... So some people just hung out there. Yeah, and wow. what, what I understood was the last person to come off the ship was the Argentinian cook, the chef, mm -hmm. and they put him in chains. Why? Because they're still at war. They oh, hate each other. Oh, my God. And so they put him Jeez. on the on the plane. So, and then plus, I guess he had to stay there and cook for the people that were on the ship. <laughs> so uh, that was the academic Iofi, and uh, I made it home on time. But uh, it was a close one. Yeah. Well, that looks like that's it for our fourth episode of the Most Child Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing a little bit about our travels to Antarctica, and we hope that you can join us for next week as we delve into more places. Thanks again.